Good morning. Tomorrow we do celebrate the 246th birthday of our country, dating from 1776. So I want to talk a little bit about our country today and a little bit about its founding and maybe a little bit about uh, what needs to happen among Christian people as well. Years ago, when the French historian Alexis de Tocqueville visited the United States, he tried to determine what it was that made America such an incredible country. And so he scheduled interviews with a variety of different people of different professions and different walks of life. He talked to teachers, he talked to doctors, he talked to professors, he talked to business people, he talked to clergy, to, to ministers. And when he got ready to leave or turn back home, everybody, all the reporters especially, they wanted to know what it was that he had decided and what he had concluded. And this is what he said. He summarized his findings by saying, America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. There's a lot of truth in that. The challenge for us today as Americans is, how can we be good? What is it that we can do to to make our country great again in that respect. Because I fear that if Alexa de Tocqueville came back to life and came to our country today and looked at it, I don't think he would say the same thing, do you? Would he walk away saying America is great because America is good? I think not. So this morning, I think one of the things that we need to do is that we need to take a look back to the founding of our country. We need to go back and, and take a look at, at, our, at the, the fathers, our forefathers in this country, and the faith of our founding fathers in this country. How did we begin? What were the roots? The first president, George Washington, said, It is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Boy, he's right on with that. And the sixth president, John Quincy Adams, said, you'll never know how much it has cost my generation to preserve your freedom. I hope you'll make good use of it. And I wonder if we are. I wonder if we are. Back when our nation was founded, today if you read, if you read the revisionist history of our country, you won't like it. Because our nation's history has been deconstructed in order to be reconstructed to say what modern day professors want to say. You'll even read in headlines things like uh, in our newspapers that our founding fathers were all atheists. And that our founding fathers did not have any regard for Christ. Our founding fathers were not men of the Bible and didn't, didn't really focus on the scriptures that much. Let me tell you. There's a word for that, baloney, because those things are outright lies when they say that about our founding fathers. And you ought to spend some time just studying the lives of the men who were a part 
of the Declaration of Independence, the lives of the men who were a part of constructing the Constitution of this country. Did you know the length of a, the average length of a Constitution for a country in our world? Anybody know what the average length is? It's a question you've probably never been asked, right? Because a lot of the countries and nations in our world, what is there, 142 of them or something like that? The average length of a constitution for a country is 17 years. Ours is 246. Every July 4th, we set a new record. <laughs> okay? Our country is unique in that respect. And we need to go back and study the lives of those men that had a part in that. Let me share a couple of things with you. This is from William Federer's book, okay, called America's God and Country. And one of the things that I remember about George Washington, he mentions in this book. And that was the account of George Washington at the Battle of the Monongahela. Let me tell you, this account was in student textbooks in this country in America until 1934 when it was taken out. Here's the account. During the French and Indian War, George Washington fought alongside British General Edward Braddock, and on July the 9th of 1755, the British were on the way to Fort, Fort Duquesne when the French surprised them in an ambush attack, the French and the Indians. The British, who were not accustomed to fighting unless in an open field where they would look right dead in the eye of those they were shooting at out in a straight line, they're not used to fighting in a forest or anything else, they were being annihilated. Washington rode back and forth across the battle delivering General Braddock's orders. As the battle raged, every other officer on horseback except Washington was shot down. Even General Braddock was killed, at which point the troops fled in confusion. After the battle, on July the 18th of 1755, Washington wrote to his brother, John A. Washington, But by the all-powerful dispensation of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation. For I had four bullets through my coat, and two horses shot under me. There was also a bullet through his cap. Yet I escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side of me. Now here's the interesting part of the story that was in the textbooks till 1934. Fifteen years later, Washington and Dr. Craig, a close friend of his from his youth, was traveling through those same woods near the Kenawa River there. And perchance they met up with an old Indian chief. His name was Red Hawk. He had been in that battle with Washington, fighting against him. And through an interpreter, he came to Washington and said this, I am a chief and ruler over my tribes. My influence extends to the waters of the Great Lakes and to the far Blue Mountains. I've traveled a long and weary path that I might see the young warrior of the great battle. It was on the day when the white man's blood mixed with the streams of our forest that I first beheld this chief, referring to Washington. I called to my young men and said, Mark yon tall and daring warrior. He's not of the Redcoat tribe. He hath an Indian's wisdom and his warriors fight as we do, himself alone exposed. Quick, let your aim be certain, and he dies. Our rifles were leveled. 
rifles which, but for you, knew not how to miss. T'was all in vain. A power mightier far than we shielded you. Seeing you were under the special guardianship of the Great Spirit, we immediately ceased to fire at you. I'm old and soon shall be gathered to the great council fire, my fathers in the land of shades. But ere I go, there's something bids me speak in the voice of prophecy. Listen, the great spirit protects that man, pointing at Washington, and guides his destinies. He will become the chief of nations, and a people yet unborn will hail him as the founder of a mighty empire. I am come to pay homage to the man who is the particular favorite of heaven and who can never die in battle. He then said, Washington was never born to be killed by a bullet. I had 17 fair fires at him with my rifle, and after all, could not bring him to the ground. And he referred to Washington as the man that God refused to let die. Washington, on, July, on June the 29th of 1788, sent a letter to General Benjamin Lincoln, his deputy in the war, that had accepted British General Cornwallis' sword at the surrender of Yorktown. He said, no country upon earth ever had it more in its power to attain these blessings. Much to be regretted indeed would it be were we to neglect the means and depart from the road which providence has pointed us to so plainly. I cannot believe it will ever come to pass. The great governor of the universe has led us too long and too far to forsake us in the midst of it. We may, now and then, get bewildered, but I hope and trust that there is good sense and virtue enough left to recover the right path. Is there any hope for our country to recover the right path? I pray that there is. And Benjamin Franklin during the writing and construction of our Constitution, they came to a stalemate and could not determine how to bring about the government that was needed for this country. The stalemate turned into bickering at each other, everybody bringing a sample of their state constitution, saying, this is the way we should go. It got so bad after four to five weeks that Alexander Hamilton and his New York delegation got up ready to leave. At which point, 81-year-old Benjamin Franklin approached the table where Washington sat, turned and addressed the convention, and he said, In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard. They were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. To that kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I've lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We've been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. 
I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our partial local interests, our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves will become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance despair of establishing governments by human wisdom and leave it to chance, war, and conquest. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that service. James Madison made the motion. It was seconded by Roger Sherman and passed unanimously. And from then on out, prayers were made every morning before the convention discussed the work. And it was not long after that that James Madison, in his, in his uh, great wisdom, went to Isaiah chapter 33 and verse 22 and set the basis for the government of the United States. That verse says, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. The Lord is our judge, the judicial system. The Lord is our lawgiver, the legislative branch. The Lord is our king, the executive branch. Our government was founded on the word of God. Benjamin Franklin went on to write later on. He said, on March the 9th of 1790, writing to Ezra Stiles, the president of Yale University, he said, here's my creed. I believe in one God, the creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we render to him is in doing good to his other children, that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life respecting its conduct in this. These I take to be the fundamental points in all sound religion, and I regard them as you do in whatever sect I meet with them. As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think the system of morals and his religion, as he left them to us, is the, is the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. Folks, we need to go back and to remember how our nation was founded and that the founding fathers were men of faith who depended upon the word of God as this country began. It was Ronald Reagan who said, if we forget that we are a nation under God, then we are a nation gone under. And he's right. One historian was asked an interesting question years ago. He was asked, why is it that life in North America has been so fruitful and abundant, while life in South America has been so oppressive and poverty-stricken? The historian answered and said, because the Spaniards went to South America in search of gold, the pilgrims went to North America in search of God. And there's a lot of truth in that. So we need to remember the foundation of our nation. But secondly, we need to remember the importance of the Word of God. Because God's Word played an important, pivotal part in the founding of this nation. And for 200 plus years, it's played a pivotal part in our lives as well, that, that of the Christian community. I love what it says in 1 Peter, the grass will wither, the flowers will fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever, and it will. 
There have been emperors that have tried to wipe out the Bible. There have been leaders that have tried to snuff it out, burn it out, do anything they possibly could, and yet it has stood the test of time. And there is no way that it could ever be taken out of our hearts. And the psalmist challenges us to memorize it, to meditate upon it, to feed upon it. And if you go to this church, you know that here at New Hope, that's what we're going to bring everything back to. It's going to go back to the Word of God. One of our core values here is that we are going to be governed by biblical authority. Popular opinion is going to fade. It's going to change. God's Word is unchanging. And because the Holy Spirit loves to hang out in places where God's Word is honored, we're going to honor it. And if we do, incredible things can happen. Greg Laurie is a preacher in California he says, as you look at our country and you look at the statements of our founding fathers, consider that many of them were Christians. They at least had a respect for the Word of God. They believed it to be an authoritative source, and they believed in the person and the power of Jesus Christ. If we remove that foundation, if we remove that belief in the Bible as the Word of God, we have a vacuum, and suddenly this whole American experiment begins to unravel. Are we unraveling today? I fear that we are. And we need to take a stand upon the Word of God. We can be stern when we need to be stern. We can be firm when necessary. And when push comes to shove, we can be pretty tough. And we need to be tough. And I just want you to notice that we've been pushed around a lot as Christians. We've been shoved a lot, and it's time to toughen up. God needs to toughen our skin, while at the same time He softens our hearts. We need to have the love of Christ, but we don't need to be pushovers. And people need to know what side that we're on. You know, during the Civil War, when General Sherman was taking his, his just burning everything inside as he went through the South, he and his men came upon a farmhouse with a woman on the front porch. And General Sherman said to the woman, Ma'am, you need to remove your belongings. We're going to burn this house down. And she just stood there. He said, Ma'am, you're going to need to leave. And she had a broom in her hand, and she held it out in front of her and shook it at him. <laughs> and Sherman just laughed at her and said, Madam, do you think you can defeat the entire forces of our army with a broom? And she said, no, but I want the world to know whose side I'm on. Whose side are you on? Somebody said, if you're not willing to stand for something, you're liable to fall for anything. And we may not, we may not agree with some of the decisions being made in our country, but in this season, as Christians, we have the opportunity to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And what light does is it dispels darkness. What salt does is, is it's a purifying agent. It's a preservative. And it can also add a little bit of pizzazz to something. And that's what Christians are to do is we're, we're sprinkled throughout our culture in this world. We need to influence others throughout our world. You've probably heard by now that my son Ryan and his wife Amanda, they had their seventh child recently. In fact, my wife Bonnie is in Oklahoma today and with them. 
And I can't help but think, what is the world going to be that I'm going to hand over to my grandchildren? What type of a country will they inherit? And if our nation could speak, what self-indicting words would she say? I wonder if our country might say, in our fear of offending newcomers to our country, we have downplayed the sacrifices of those who serve our country and protect our freedom of worship. In our attempt to be inclusive, we have stopped saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven. In our quest for more and more possessions, we have racked up huge debts that rob us of our joy. In our search for the fountain of youth, we have stopped listening to the wisdom of the elderly. In our efforts for political correctness, we have diminished the power of our Christian witness. And in our desire to fit in, we have forsaken our first love. And listen, folks, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that something has got to change. And it's got to start with God's people. In Mark chapter 1, verses 40 and 41, you know the story. It's the story of a leper that is healed by Jesus. It says, a man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. So here's a leper that comes down, he bows down and he begs of Jesus for healing. Now some translations interpret this and Say then instead of saying he begged him on his knees, it says that he worships the Lord. Now whenever you're on your knees looking up at someone, that is a position of worship, a position of submission to a higher authority. Why would this leper worship? Why would he say to Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean? I think somehow this leper realized that he was in the presence of the Messiah. Somehow this leper knew it, and this leper comes down, he bows down, he worships Jesus, and his prayer is, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. It wasn't if you can, it was if you are willing. And this is what the Lord did. He doesn't throw rocks at him like some people used to do at a common leper that would come out in public. In fact, some of the Pharisees would do that. He doesn't shoo him away. He doesn't start shouting, unclean, unclean. He doesn't draw attention to him in that way. What does Jesus do? He does two things. First, he reaches out and touches him. Mark Scott, preaching at the Red Hill Preaching Rally this week, one of the nights, he said, uh, he makes a point and he said, you didn't respond the way you, you were supposed to respond. Because the crowd was supposed to respond how in Jesus' name. <gasps> he reached out and touched a leper. <gasps> yeah. You realize what that must have felt like to that leper? How long it had been since anyone had touched his skin? And to receive a touch from Jesus Christ, the powerful Messiah... Who was a humble individual, that must have been amazing just to feel touch on his skin. 
But Jesus didn't stop there. He said, I am willing. And the Bible says immediately is healed. It says the leper is made whole. You say, how does that relate to anything about our country, Bill? Well, what that leper received was a touch from the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's precisely what our country needs today. It needs a touch from the Lord. This leper had a prayer, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me whole. That's what we ought to be praying for our nation. Lord, if you're willing, make our nation whole. Give us your healing touch. Allow us to return to you afresh, to worship you, acknowledge you, and to live by your standards. I think we need to listen to our country. Because if you listen to your country, you might hear a faint heartbeat of a country that's desperately desiring a bypass procedure that radically jump starts within us a faith of our fathers, that leads us to a cross and starts a spiritual revival in this land, a land where Christians have the Bible opened on their laps instead of just as a decoration on the coffee table, a land where a handshake is just as binding as a legal contract, a land where husband and wives mean it when they say, till death do us part, a land where Christians are more prone to fall on their knees than to puff out their chest. A land where Bible-believing churches take a stand for truth in such a way that the gates of hell cannot prevail against them. So listen to the country. She desires a restoration. And it's a restoration that can only come through the power of God. But it won't begin without prayer and humility and repentance. And it'll never happen unless it starts with you and with me. How was it? The Lord says it in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Our land needs healing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, as the psalmist said, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We want to be that nation. Help us to remember the foundation of our country. May we be doers of the word, not just hearers only. May we be willing to take a stand so that others know of the difference that Jesus Christ can make in a person's life. And the difference that Jesus can make in their life as well. Father, help us to be your people who humble ourselves and pray and seek your face and turn from our wicked ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.